At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. We live in an era when people can choose from many sources for news, often in accordance with their own politics. Biased news has been around for quite a while, and today we learn about how Atlanta's most important newspaper reported events from 1861 to 1865. Later this hour, we'll hear about the recent book, The Atlanta Daily Intelligencer Covers the Civil War. First, you immediately get the tone of Victor Varnado's anti-racism activity book on page one. He writes, dedicated in loving memory to all the racists that won't exist after reading this book. Or perhaps you believe racism already doesn't exist, in which case this might be a great book for you. Barnado is among the few black New Yorker cartoonists, and his work has appeared in Mad Magazine, Marvel Comics, and Salon. He's also a stand-up comedian. Victor Barnado joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Lois, thank you so much for having me. Oh, it is a thrill to talk with you. Would you tell us how you present yourself to readers in the about the author section of this book? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) People who don't know me are usually quick to figure out that I am a Black person who has albinism. And so I have very light skin and light hair and have often been mistaken for white in just my lifetime. And so I talk about that at the very beginning of the book. And just just that I have been around white people when they didn't know someone black is around and have been around black people when they did not know that I was also black. So I have seen some stuff is what I say in the book. <laughs> oh, yes. And what stories to tell. Would you describe some of the activities in your anti-racist book? 
Uh, it's ac actually anti-racism, but the reason that I make that I'm distinction. Sorry. Oh, it's quite all right. But I make that distinction for a reason because I didn't want to make the book against people. I wanted to make it against the act of racism. Because if you're saying the book is, you know, against a person who is racist, then I don't want to label people. I, I want to give people a chance to make their own decisions. And so that's why it's against racism, which I think everyone can agree with. I would hope so. And thank you for catching my typo and worse, possibly misunderstanding there. Oh, no problem. Thank you for hearing me out about it. And the book itself, the activities in the book are actually around that idea. I'm trying to present things in the book about racism in such a way where I think that most people will agree with the points that I'm trying to make. For instance, there's a page in the book which is mostly blank, except at the top of the page, it says this page is reserved for every white person who needs to say the N-word. And then at the bottom of the page, I put, if you disagree, feel free to draw yourself in. So <laughs> I feel like most people can understand, you know, that page could stay blank and it wouldn't be a problem. No, it would be a great thing, in fact. <laughs> I'm curious about it anyone who's actually drawn themselves in. <laughs> so I would be as well. Oi, I don't want to think about it. Many of the entries are very funny. And then we encounter a cartoon that is searing or stunning with its message. Tell us about the connect the dots example with Eric. Ah, so there's a cartoon in the book where you have a black man looking over his shoulder and it's saying connect the dots to draw the target on Eric's back because there's a target on his back as a black man. It's no surprise to people at this point that there are cases where black people and men especially have been in jeopardy because of the way that society is set up. And and a lot of people a lot of people, I think, have the idea that societal racism or institutional racism, they say, doesn't exist. But from a Black person's point of view, there are many men who are Black who have been singled out by the police in a fashion that people of other races or particularly white races have not been singled out. And it's just something that exists. And I'm not trying to accuse anybody of anything, but I'm just saying like it's a way of life of, of Black men especially growing up, like they have to understand that they must be aware or it's dangerous for them. Yeah. In fact, you have another cartoon with a father and a little boy, a father-son giving him the talk. Yeah. It's a talk that definitely happens with parents and children of color often where they have to tell them that sometimes there are situations in which the world is skewed in such a way where you have to be aware to be safe. Interesting side fact, though, the Eric in that picture is actually modeled after my friend Eric Andre. He actually shared it on uh, social media, the picture after he saw it. <laughs> the weapon hunt is uh, another display of irony. Would you describe it? Yes. While researching this book, 
I actually was surprised at some of the things that I found too. For instance, Weapon Hunt was one of those where I was like, I wonder what things have been mistaken for guns in the hands of Black people. And then through my research, I found that the number of things that have been mistaken for guns is quite shocking. Yeah, like a Bible? <laughs> yeah, a Bible, a piece of pizza, a human hand, <laughs> like their own hand. They thought it was a gun when it wasn't a gun. So like there are, yeah, it's 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 surprising. It, it, it surprised me researching the book because I came, when I started the book, I was, I came with the idea that I would like to make a book that is funny enough so that it makes it easy for people to talk about racism. Because one of the things I think that makes the conversation easier to have is when you don't run into the room accusing people or pointing fingers, but instead just kind of like lay out the facts in a way that's easy to digest. And so that's what the book was about. And so so when I started researching each of the pages of the book, I was surprised to find out a lot of facts that I did not know were true, especially I didn't I didn't know that lift every voice and sing the Black National Anthem was originally sang to Abraham Lincoln as a birthday song. I had no idea that that was true as well. There's Who so much knew? that I found out. I know. I was like, wow. I really lit up with that. And I shall think of that from now on when I hear the song. There's comic irony in the cartoon that features a man seated in his car with a policeman. I think this may be my favorite cartoon in the book, Victor. Would you describe what the man pulled over by the policeman standing against his car is saying to the officer? Yes. I wish I had the book in front of me so I could quote it directly. I wish I, but I will say this, the gist of it is there's a man in a car who has just been pulled over by a policeman and the policeman is at the car, presumably just asking him to step out of the car. And the man has a clipboard with paper on it. And he's basically asking the policeman, he's like, well, before I step out of the car, would you mind taking the psychiatric evaluation? <laughs> <laughs> just to... <laughs> Just to, you know, see how, see how safe it is. <laughs> if you are just joining us, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with the New Yorker cartoonist Victor Varnado. His new book is called The Anti-Racism Activity Book. Now, this, this felt like the most New Yorker of the cartoons that appear in the anti-racism activity book. Did this appear in the New Yorker, or are all of these cartoons original to the anti-racism activity book? There are two cartoons in the book that actually appeared in the New Yorker, or at least there are there reproductions of, of cartoons that appeared that I uh, had in the New Yorker. Some of the cartoons are things that are rejected from the New Yorker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shame on them. <laughs> and then other cartoons are cartoons that I made originally for the book. And every single puzzle in the book are completely original for the book. The calm across, calm down crossword puzzle <laughs> was a challenge. And 
really laugh out loud funny. How long did it take you to put that exercise together? Oh my gosh, I am so glad you asked that question. Imagine, for instance, that you're making this book and I was making the book and you have a funny idea. And then at one point I say to myself, oh, wouldn't it be great if I made all of these puzzles that were funny and lampooned racism? And I was like, what a great idea. But when you get to the point where you're trying to, one, write a bunch of jokes that walk the line, that walk this line that is hard to walk, where it's funny, but it also speaks about racism in a palatable way. But then number two, on top of that, you're also trying to make puzzles. <laughs> the amount of time uh, increases dramatically. So I didn't know that when I started, it took me more than a year to finish the book the way I, that I wanted to finish. And I would say that each of those puzzles took days. Mm, I can imagine. Another great puzzle was the racist mascots. <laughs> yeah. The funny thing is, that's a common thing that people know about. So that at least the information was really easy to find. <laughs> I was tripped up on Chiquita Banana. I, I didn't know that she was originally Miss Chiquita before she was just Chiquita Banana. Oh. So I cheated. <laughs> I cheated, Victor. I had to look that up. Ah, well, I mean, it's not, it's not cheating. The exercise is the real prize. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'm just putting it all out there. I'm giving you a pass, officially. <laughs> Thank you. I know you are a stand-up comedian. You've done improv. You've appeared with Conan O'Brien and Jimmy Kimmel. Would you talk about how cartooning informs your stand-up and vice versa? Absolutely. There is a skill which you hone as a cartoonist that is very useful in stand-up comedy. And that skill is communicating a very specific message with very little and or limited information. Because a cartoon, a gag cartoon especially, is like one image and usually one line of text, and it should say volumes. And bringing that skill over into stand-up comedy is a great thing coming up with the exact the exact line or expression or way of expressing yourself that will really drive a message home with the audience. I was a stand-up comedian before I was a cartoonist, but when I started cartooning, it made me a better comedian. Hmm. I, I can understand that because what you've said just describes stripping something to its essence and that's not easy to do it takes a lot of people a lot of words often not even having the words but here you can do it with words and pictures the certificate of absolution appears here and i have to say <laughs> there's a lot of trust you put in your readers or activators. Is that a word? Sure. The people who are filling out these pages. Do you trust that we each will be honest to make this valid? Well, I feel that 
there will always be some sort of fringe on any sort of experiment. There's always the outliers. But I feel like most people, most people are going to make it valid. They'll find two Black friends to sign it for them <laughs> who are sincere. I'm trying to decide on which <laughs> friends. Yeah. Victor Varnado, do you have a second anti-racism volume planned? I do not have a second volume planned as of yet. I do think that the book itself was so much fun, and I really do like the final product. I'm very proud of it. I want to do more with it. I don't know exactly what I'm going to do with it yet. I got to figure it out. Well, I think the cover illustration of the person slouching in front of the sign that says recognizing racism and the person with the backpack next to him pointing to the sign that says doing something about it is speaking volumes in itself. Thank you so very much. Thank you for having me on the show and, and for enjoying the book. That's all I really want. I want people to enjoy the book and talk about it. And you want them to feel less guilty after buying it, correct? <laughs> Absolutely. It says so clearly on the cover. You will feel less guilty after buying the book. New Yorker cartoonist Victor Varnado, creator of the Anti-Racism Activity Book. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, former AJC reporter Bill Hendrick talks about the book The Atlanta Daily Intelligencer Covers the Civil War. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. From its first publication in 1849 until the founding of the Atlanta Constitution in 1871, the Atlanta Intelligencer was the city's most important newspaper. The Atlanta Daily Intelligencer covers the Civil War, by historian Stephen Davis and journalist Bill Hendrick, is a recent book 
which examines newspaper articles, editorials, and related stories from April of 1861 through April of 1865. Bill Hendricks spent 45 years as a reporter, the last 30-some years with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He joins me now via Zoom to talk about the book. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. It's great to be here. You and your co-author did extensive research on the intelligencer. What made you want to write this book? In 1994, a shell was discovered when Riches, the old Riches store downtown, was torn down. And they called in a bunch of archaeologists. And the archaeologist, among the things that they found, was an old shell fired by Sherman. And in a well or a cistern, they found a bunch of artifacts from Atlanta during the Civil War period. Having an interest in archaeology, I ran down there and uh, gathered information, did a story. And then I went up to the Atlanta History Center where Franklin Garrett, who was 87 years old at the time, and he is probably the expert, or was the expert on Atlanta during that period. And I asked him to come down with me and look at the stuff or look at what we could see. There are archaeologists in holes and trenches and digging all kinds of things. And uh, Mr. Garrett, with his uh, suit, tie, vest, and polished black shoes, rode down with me to the site. I didn't have on uh, wingtips. I was a journalist. I knew how to dress, and I didn't care about getting muddy, but I was surprised that he came down with me. And he came down, and he showed me things, and uh, he said, this is where the Atlanta Daily Intelligencer, which I had never heard of, is located. And he said there are probably shells and artifacts all over the place. It was a, a fascinating uh, archaeological study done by some guy up in uh, Woodstock. He had a company up there. But the most important thing to me was the uh, Hotchkiss artillery shell. It was one of many shells. He fired thousands of uh, shells into downtown Atlanta during the battles and after the occupation. It was like going back in time. This stuff had been there for well over 100 years. How did you and your co-author gather the information and divide the labor for the book? I consider myself sort of an expert on journalism, how you gather the news, how it goes through various editors, how it's printed, and so forth. That was my part of studying for the book on the intelligencer. Steve Davis has written seven or eight books on the Civil War in Atlanta, the generals who were in charge, and so forth. I was interested in how the newspaper got the, the information and put it together on a daily basis. And frankly, they had a hard time doing it. Yeah. What does the Atlanta Daily Intelligencer reveal about how the Civil War was reported? This is interesting. The Atlanta Daily Intelligencer tried to report, it, it appears to me, we read four years worth of microfilm, which just about made me go blind. But the Intelligencer reported, it tried to report the news where it appeared to report the news, but everything was biased. 
the intelligencer, just like Northern newspapers, which I'm studying now for another reason, there was no such thing as objectivity as we tried to have, uh, we tried to have during my career, and as newspapers try to have today. Even in a story that was a news story, it wasn't all correct. And in many times, it was, uh, if it was bad news, it was either ignored or lied about. For example, I think the Battle of Gettysburg, which was a tremendous loss for the South, it wasn't even mentioned in the intelligencer until four or five months later. And then the editor of the intelligencer put a note at the bottom saying, we get most of this information from Northern newspapers and from official reports. And this probably isn't true. We probably actually won. So it wasn't a newspaper like, it, like newspapers are today. And there weren't corrections for mistakes. I found it fascinating. It's um, and I'm that's the reason the reason I'm doing a book now on uh, newspapers of the 19th century, going all the way back to the Alamo and seeing if they did the same thing, which I suspect that they did. The intelligencer referred to Abraham Lincoln as a bloody-minded, wicked despot. How did the paper treat the topic of slavery? Amazingly, as far as I can tell, and I've read the whole thing, the book, and I've read all of the microfilm, advertisements for what they called slave marts were reported usually on the front page. And African-Americans were referred to as, uh, in the same way that somebody selling uh, livestock would report on livestock. It's amazing how uh, propaganda can make people think certain things. We saw the same thing in the 2020 presidential election. We saw the same thing just recently. They reported what they wanted people to think. And the propaganda worked. Otherwise, I still can't figure this out. Why did people, and I had ancestors who fought in the Civil War on the Southern side, but none of them owned slaves. They were all privates. And I'm trying to get somebody who's going to live longer than me because this, this is going to take a long time. And I don't, I don't have any fatal disease that I know of, but, but I'm trying to get somebody who's fairly young and smart to write a book on why so many people on both sides, but especially the South, why they fought. I mean, I, it's hard for me to believe that they were fighting for slavery because they didn't own slaves. So they had been propagandized to believe that the Southern cause was the same cause that the, the victorious Americans had in the Revolutionary War. And it's pretty amazing to see. And if you read this when you don't have the internet or any other TV, radio, any other source of uh, information, it's pretty easy to see how people were propagandized to believe this nonsense. Well, but were Southerners aware in any of the, I think you mentioned, 844 newspapers that existed in the South, which diminished to 250-some by the end of the Civil War, were they aware of the Emancipation Proclamation? Yes, but that was also played down and it wasn't reported for long after 
it went into effect, which was, uh, I believe, January 1st, 1863. Frankly, most of the newspapers that I've looked at in the South, and I've looked at quite a few, were, in a sense, pretty much the same as the Intelligencer. The Intelligencer was better. It was longer. It had uh, four full pages. Many of the papers were weeklies. It's like a, a great cloud uh, fell on the South and everybody believed the same thing. But you can again, you can see how that happened because they all pretty much reported the same thing. And the thing, one thing that's very important is that they shared news. The Atlanta Daily Intelligencer sent a copy of the Intelligencer to hundreds of other newspapers. In turn, those newspapers sent a, an issue, a copy of their daily newspaper or some cases, weekly papers, to the intelligencer. And that's where most of the news came from. It was like, it was sort of like a Southern wire service, except it came through the mail and uh, they all were told the same thing and they all believed the same thing. And this had been going on since, you know, the compromise of 1850. Uh, this is, the belief system really hadn't changed that much for many years and they were, they really truly believed that the Northerners were some sort of evil devils and that they were trying to take over the South. Part of that is, of course, true because the North couldn't really have an economy, a thriving economy, without cotton. And the intelligencer and other papers used that fact in their propaganda effort. It's really kind of amazing. And you, you, you get an idea of, of the newspaper and all newspapers and how Southerners thought, how they were conditioned to think what we can see today as absurdities. And inhumanity. I mean, to call Lincoln a bloody-minded, wicked despot and yet defend slavery, pretty ironic. Well, it was pretty ironic, but they called that was the least of the things that they called Lincoln. He was called a monkey, uh, a baboon, uh, all during the war. Ironically, as soon as he was shot, this really blows my mind, but as soon as he was murdered, the tone changed. They said, oh, what a tragedy. Mr. Lincoln has been shot and killed. And this was immediate, immediate meaning a few days, as soon as they found out about it and could report something. But their first reports of things like the Battle of Gettysburg and even Lincoln's assassination, the editor would attach a note often saying, you have to take, basically, that you have to take this with a grain of salt because we, we heard this from sources that are not reliable, meaning Northern newspapers. And somehow, Northern newspapers made it to the South and Southern newspapers made it to the North. It's pretty amazing. For example, during the time that the intelligencer left Atlanta, which was in uh, July of 1864, after the Battle of Atlanta and the Battle of Peachtree Creek, and they went to, to Macon, there is a story in the New York Times written by the intelligencer after it had refugeed to Macon there's a story in the New York Times from an Atlanta Daily Intelligencer reporter talking about the shelling of Atlanta and how civilians were being killed. And the New York Times ran it exactly the way the Intelligencer reporter wrote it. In other words, with some 
considerable bias. And I found that fascinating, but that again shows the exchange system, which is what they called it, was critical for both the Northern and Southern newspapers. Now, Northern, Northern newspapers are a whole different story because the New York newspapers and even the Cincinnati newspapers, anything above the Mason-Dixon line, the major, the major cities sent many reporters with all of the major armies. That was not true in the South. You know, the intelligencer, like I said, didn't, by the end of the war, they had, I think, three full-time reporters. But reporters back then could write for several newspapers because they would get paid by several newspapers. So that's how they made more money than, uh, you, know, than you would have expected. Hmm. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrights is speaking with former AJC reporter and author Bill Hendrick. His new book, co-written with historian Stephen Davis, is The Atlanta Daily Intelligencer Covers the Civil War. The paper had the power to give reporters, editors, compositors, and printers an exemption from the draft. What does that tell us about the role of media in the Confederacy? Well, it shows that the government of the Confederacy, just as in the North, they knew the importance of propaganda. They knew the importance of newspapers reporting in a pro-Confederate way because this would help them recruit soldiers. Compositors were the guys who like put the little letters together one by one. They, uh, that was a pretty skilled uh, labor. And then they had people who worked in the press room who were less skilled. And, and you can imagine it was steam, steam powered, very hot. But these people, they had been so indoctrinated that many newspapers, including the intelligencer, had a hard time keeping printers. But as far as I can tell, not many reporters, because they all went and they were gung ho and they joined the uh, Confederate Army. They wanted to fight. They wanted to do more than just print the newspaper. But that role was important. Well, it couldn't have been, the paper couldn't have been printed without the printers. So there were ads in the newspapers, especially the Intelligencer, every now and then saying, we need, a, we need printers. They also probably, and we, we can't prove this because we can't find any records from the Intelligencer or from Jared uh, Whitaker or from John Steele, and I looked everywhere you could find. Those most, were the editors. Yes, John Steele was the editor. Jared Whitaker, both of whom are buried in Oakland in fairly impressive graves. They were the guys that, that called the shots. The military historian Gordon Jones of the Atlanta History Center describes the Atlanta Daily Intelligencer as the live local news of its day. How were they comparable, live local TV news coverage and that Civil War era paper? Oh, I don't think they were comparable at all. I don't want to say anything about how journalism has evolved and what journalism is now. The intelligencer did the best that it could, but it, its mission, remember this is before journalism schools, the mission wasn't the same for the intelligencer as it is for newspapers today or for television stations today. 
these people were, they might have, even Jared Whitaker, he might as well have been wearing a Confederate uniform because they were gung-ho, pro-Confederate. They didn't want to admit that they lost battles. They didn't want to admit, admit that uh, people deserted. It was not the same uh, ethic. I just about went blind reading the microfilm at the uh, History Center. And we had a full run of, of the paper and uh, microfilm, but it, the microfilm is not in very good shape. I just, I don't see uh, very much similarity between Southern Civil War newspapers and journalism today. Journalism today strives very hard, now with limited budgets like they had in the Civil War, but with limited budgets to, to do the best that they can. But, and they try not to sensationalize. But they do probably sensationalize, but not not it doesn't even compare to what Southern and Northern newspapers did during the Civil War. The twisting of the truth was just astonishing to me. But it was the only thing people had. Why did my three great grandfathers and one great grandfather fight in the Army of Northern Virginia? They were all privates, not one of them owned slaves, yet they were extremely, in their minds, patriotic and willing to give their lives. And this is one of the things that I just, I can't fathom. These guys really weren't fighting for slavery. They were fighting what they had been told, that they had been invaded, that northern uh, merchants were stealing from them and were taking too many of the profits, how people were convinced on both sides, but especially the intelligentsia readers. And the intelligentsia readers were not just people in Atlanta, they were people all over Georgia and all over the Confederacy and even in the North. Today we know full well the power of the media to shape political beliefs and determine behaviors. From your research, what can we conclude about how the Atlanta Daily Intelligencer influenced beliefs about the Confederacy and the lost cause. How they influenced it was they wrote what they wanted to write, they ignored what they wanted to ignore, and they put a twist on stories or on events that were positive to them, but they were really, what had happened was not positive at all. It was propaganda, and newspapers were propaganda, all of them. Fortunately, people, readers, did get some news because they got news from the telegraph because every word that was telegraphed cost money. Telegraphs were short. Now, this is in the South. In the North, they didn't care. They wrote 1,000, 2,000-word stories that were telegraphed. They didn't do that in the South. But the intelligencer had a telegraph column that would be close to objective journalism because it was uh, filed by news services or just by telegrams. And they got official reports from Richmond, which were published, letters from soldiers, which were published, but the intelligencer would only publish uh, letters from people who would put their names on the stories. In other words, they, there was an effort to make, make it as authentic as as possible and and as accurate as possible but these were letters from soldiers and from the parents of soldiers who read who received letters and uh, it was still it was propaganda 
Mm. Bill Hendrick, thank you very much for this look into how newspaper coverage took place during the Civil War. Thank you for talking with me about the Atlanta Daily Intelligencer. Thank you very much, Lois, for talking with me. Writer and longtime AJC reporter Bill Hendrick co-authored the Atlanta Daily Intelligencer covers the Civil War with historian Stephen Davis. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. When Stephen Colbert took over as host of The Late Show, he wanted a superb band to be part of the program. Saxophonist Eddie Barbash co-founded that band with John Batiste. He's an extraordinary musician across genres who has collaborated with artists including Wynton Marsalis and Yo-Yo Ma. In conversation last October ahead of his performance at the Bremen Museum, Eddie Barbash talked about growing up in Atlanta and how that inspired him to pursue music at an early age. In the 90s, when I was in elementary school in Atlanta, I went to Atlanta Public Schools, and they had a really strong band program and music program in general. From the very beginning, I think maybe even as early as kindergarten, certainly as early as first grade, they had us taking sort of a general music class. And then in third grade, you got to choose whether you wanted to be in choir or band or handbell choir. And uh, I ended up choosing the band. And that's kind of where it all started. I had a really great band director when I started named Mr. Miller, who recognized pretty early on that I had some talent and would start writing out pieces for me to play as little solos on our band concerts. And he would accompany me on piano. And I think all that early experience and uh, with performing and that encouragement is really kind of what stoked the flame and sent me off on this path. And that path took you to Juilliard. Yes. After being in Atlanta through my second year of high school, I went to North Carolina where I went to an art school called the North Carolina School of the Arts. And then from there, I went to Juilliard in New York. And I've been in living in New York since then, since 2007. The concert at the Bremen is a tribute to your grandparents and the music they loved. Please tell us a bit about your grandparents and how they influenced you. Well, Murray, my grandfather, and Lillian, my grandmother, neither of them were musicians, I think, my grandfather, Murray, tried to play the clarinet for a few years at one point, but was so bad at it that he gave up. 
and I think everybody in the family was happy about that when he did. <laughs> but they were very serious music lovers. Uh, my grandfather loved Louis Armstrong and loved they loved classical music. He he's I think his favorite composer was probably Mozart, and my grandmother really loved the opera, and so because of them, I was exposed to a lot of great music from a really young age, and I would get to go to Broadway shows with them and go to the Metropolitan Opera with them and go see the symphony and whatnot. You know, they were just really supporters of the arts. They both, for one of their major anniversaries, they commissioned a piece to be played by Yo-Yo Ma, and they had so much fun doing that that they did it two more times, commissioned works to be played. They're just real music lovers. Oh, yeah. Eddie, I saw the video where you are performing with the Casa Quartet, and you're doing a deliciously nostalgic rendition of I Only Have Eyes for You. It feels like it's straight out of a classic Hollywood movie, and your playing is smooth and sweet, but there's also a little twang in it when you play an old ballad like that. What's special about your approach to drawing that sound from the sax? I think a lot of, there is a great tradition of horn players, in, in the jazz tradition, a great tradition of horn players playing ballads with strings. And I think the thing that I've done maybe a little bit that's different from the way it's been done before is that I I really model my interpretations off of the singers that I love doing these tunes. For you, I'm thinking of Fred Astaire doing it, or um, I believe there's maybe maybe he doesn't sing it. I know there's a version of it in the movie Daddy Long Legs, but actually that my sort of the formative version for me of that tune is the doo-wop version. I can't remember if it's by the Platters or somebody else, and then also the version from the Busby Berkeley movie Dames with Dick Powell singing it. And so I really think of those vocalists sort of first and foremost, rather than imitating somebody like Charlie Parker, who has his iconic record, Charlie Parker with strings, bird with strings. Instead, I'm really thinking of trying to sing the melodies. And then I try to always do a little something to set myself apart from the singers, whether that's, you know, one or two flurries of notes that somebody wouldn't be able to sing or you know, like a type of embellishment that wouldn't be able to be sung, or using the range of the instrument that a voice might not have. So you're famous for 
playing in every genre. How do you turn the saxophone into a bluegrass instrument? <laughs> Not easy. Well, I, I really fell in love with that music when I learned my first fiddle tune from a friend. And I think uh, really the key to that for me has been learning about the music through the repertoire, through learning these really timeless old fiddle tunes. A big part of what makes that music what it is, is its rhythmic pulsion. And so trying to find a way to make the tone of the saxophone lighter and more bouncy so that it doesn't feel like, you know, an elephant trying to run or something when you're playing these fast tunes that are supposed to be light and bouncy. So I kind of lighten up my tone and I very deliberate with my articulation to make everything feel as crisp and rhythmic as possible. You must get a lot of questions about being a founding member and in the house band for The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Certainly a much envied gig for many musicians. What have been some highlights from your experience on The Late Show? Some of the best experiences were the musicians, the other musicians we got to play with. So a very memorable one to me was we got to play with Stevie Wonder. And of course, playing with him was amazing. But one of the funniest and most memorable moments to me was when I think the way, so everything's always hectic when you're filming on TV. There's so many moving parts that despite the final product always being amazing, it often feels like a tornado when you're doing it. And so what was supposed to happen was he was supposed to finish his interview Come walk over to the bandstand and play one song with us and then leave and have his segment be done. But for whatever reason, his assistant never came to get him after he finished playing the song with us. And he couldn't make his way off the stage on his own. So, oh, oh, I thought you were going to say he was just so enthralled with well, playing that it he could have stop. it could have been something I you know, it could have been the type of thing where he was having a lot of fun playing with us, and we had this rapport going that I think kind of what happened was we were jamming and we ended up jamming all the way back into the next segment. And then at that point, the interview had started, and it was sort of too cumbersome to try and come get him off stage while they were filming something else and he ended up getting stuck on stage with us and when you're taping those shows there's always these sort of boring moments where some segment is going on and the band isn't really involved and you're kind of just sitting there on the bandstand waiting for your next thing to happen and i just it was the funniest moment that i'll never forget where we were all kind of in that part of the show where we're sitting there like waiting for whatever's going to happen next and I look over at the piano and John and Stevie are sitting at the piano together and Stevie wonders just in the exact same boat that we're in he's got his arm <laughs> resting on top of the piano with like his head kind of hung down just looking like he's sitting there bored <laughs> waiting for the chance to play again and it was just like well 
here's Stevie Wonder, one of the, you know, most iconic musicians of all time. And he's just dealing with the same thing we are right now. <laughs> Saxophonist Eddie Barbash. You can hear our entire conversation from last October on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Now, City Lights producer Janine Etter tells us about ATL Chili Week. Chili lovers rejoice. The Atlanta Chili Week kicks off February 20th through the 26th. Creative Loafing partnered with the Georgia Beef Board and the Georgia Cattlemen's Association to create this competition in support of local restaurants. Competing Atlanta restaurants will serve their best, most distinctive chilies for an entire week. Patrons are asked to try as many chilies as they can at the various restaurants and then vote online. There are two categories for the restaurants to win in, the public vote and the blind taste test vote. Creative Loafing representative Emma Carr was the one who conceptualized the ATL Chili Week in 2021. The most exciting aspect of ATL Chili Week is definitely the blind taste test, and it's always a pretty big surprise. In years past, we've had Smith's Old Bar one. Hot Dog Pete's has been a big winner with the public vote and the blind taste test vote, so it's always exciting to see who wins the public vote that everyone can go online and vote for, but then also who wins the blind taste test. For more information, you can follow them on Instagram or on their website, atlchiliweek.com. There you can see the participating restaurants and the descriptions of the chilies offered. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m. we hear about the Atlanta Lyric Theater's production of the rock musical Next to Normal. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E.